Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today, we have an excellent podcast. Today, we're talking to Bruce Welty, and the name of the podcast is The Quiet 3PF Story with Bruce Welty. How's it going there, Bruce? Going well. And you? Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I'm very excited to finally get a chance to talk to you. I came across Bruce a few weeks ago, and I've been looking at his LinkedIn profile and his company websites, and I say multiple companies. So I've been busy, busy trying to research him a little bit because he's got a long story, and we're going to hear it today. So, Bruce, before we go any further, please introduce yourself and your company. My name is Bruce Welty, and I'm the founder and currently vice chairman of the Quiet 3PF. Uh, What does 3PF stand for? Third-party fulfillment, which Uh, is the business that sits between you and the retailer when you buy something on the web. You probably don't know we exist, and we kind of hope you don't. But what we do is uh, we process your orders. So if you buy two yellow shirts and a pair of shoes, we'll put that in a box and ship it to your house, and it'll look like it came from the company you bought it from. So where are you based? Where is your company based? Company's based in southern Connecticut now. We were originally founded in Massachusetts, where I'm from, and we were recently acquired, and uh, the company that acquired us is based in southern Connecticut. So we have nine facilities around the country. We have three in Massachusetts, one in St. Louis, L.A., Chicago, Dallas and Jacksonville, Florida, and we have others that we're building out as we speak. Very nice. So where do you guys specialize in? Who's the big segments you work with? Well, the company started out early in the fashion apparel space, and our theory was that was something people would always need, and we also sort of wanted to limit our demographic to our customer base that would be higher end so that we wouldn't have to cover every zip code in the United States. So we specialize in basically premium branded apparel. So a lot of the companies that you've probably heard of out there that you see big grocery stores, I'm sorry, big uh, department stores. If you walk through there, you'll see a lot of brands with their own setups inside these department stores. That's the kind of customer that we that we ship for. Very nice. Well, I want to get into a little bit about your background. So where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Give us some of the your upbringing. Well, I was born in Minnesota, of all places, Minneapolis, and moved to Massachusetts, sort of kicking and screaming. I kind of liked Minnesota, but of course, I didn't know anything else. So I went to... You uh, moved for the weather? (laughs) My dad got a new job. (laughs) He didn't give me a choice in the matter. But anyway, I became a Bostonian. I actually lived in Concord, Mass. I went to uh, Colorado College in the liberal arts program there, studied mathematics, in the late 70s. and What's, What college? Colorado College in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Oh, nice. It's a liberal arts, small private school. And I studied math. I originally started in physics, but I found that I had completed all the requirements for math. So I just flipped my major and was done. But that was just as early days of computers coming out. And I learned how to write computer code, which I suppose is strange coming out of a liberal arts school. But so I got my my start as a coder. I just became interested in the details of what happens in business and started with banks, insurance companies in New York City and ultimately did a project for a warehouse company. And then I started to understand the complexity of what goes on in a warehouse, which is it seems easy, but it's non-trivial. And then over time, I just became an expert in that. Right. So we're always trying to understand it when I do these podcasts a little bit about the person. So when you were a kid, were you, you play sports, you into music, or what were you into? I always think like, wouldn't it be nice if you could kind of decode what makes somebody successful? What are the things they're doing as children? Well, I don't know if I'm typical. I don't know if anybody's typical, but I no. was into, <laughs> yeah, I was into math stuff that be, it sort of came easy to me or easier than other subjects. I was a total sports nut. I skied every day I could. I played golf, played tennis, mostly individual sports. Believe it or not, I took a sport called fencing, which is an Olympic sport, but not very many people in the country do it. So I think I was ranked like fourth or third in my, in my weapon 
in the country. And I, then I quickly learned that if you play sports that don't have many participants, then you can be really good. So then I took up. <laughs> That's a blue ocean strategy right there. <laughs> yeah. And I took up squash. And really for the first part of my career, I think all I really wanted to do was have a job just so I could play these competitive sports. And uh, I traveled around the country in amateur tournaments. And, and squash? And yeah, squash mostly. I was, fencing didn't survive because it's not something you can just kind of like say to somebody, hey, you want to join me after work and fence? <laughs> well, there's not that many squash players. It seems like as if racquetball kind of jumped in and took over for squash. Now I see racquetball seems to wane. It seems like squash is bigger again. Well, there's plenty of both. I mean, I never had any trouble in any city finding a squash player. And I used to travel with my racket. So, And then now it's golf. I just find that a lot of people like to play golf, and it's a great way to get to know people. So, Well, one of the things that seems to be consistent, I've talked to probably uh, seven or eight people who have been fairly successful in business, and a lot of them seem, not everybody, a lot of them seem to be competitive athletes, or at least competitive about something when they were kids. So one other thing I'd like to ask about your childhood, did you work a lot? Did you have jobs early on? Yeah, I did. I was, I think I've had every sort of blue-collar job you could imagine from paper boy to caddy to lifeguard to landscaper to night watchman. And sometimes I had, I think one summer, I had four jobs at once. I, my girlfriend sort of pointed that out to me, and <laughs> I think she wasn't so happy about it. But, uh, yeah, I, I always worked a lot. And I don't know why. I mean, I guess I liked being paid, but I also felt like, you know, you got to do something. Were you a good student? I was a good student. You know, I... Decent student, not a bad student, certainly. I wasn't, I didn't get any cum laude's, but I think I was more interested in all the other aspects of college than the, getting the A's and the Oh, yeah, who, who wasn't? <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's interesting because that's, again, a pretty consistent theme that people who have done well for themselves have started working early. And I think I can say for myself is, I was an okay student. I wasn't always great. There was sometimes I worked real hard and I felt like I worked harder than all my very, my friends who got great grades. And I got good grades and I was like, I'm working a lot harder than you are. And that for whatever reason didn't translate. But then when I went on to uh, work, I'd say, hey, this translates. Wherever I go, I'm pretty much in demand after a while, except for it's my time as a draftsman where I realized I suck at this. <laughs> but anyway, so when you got out of school, you went and you were, you were a coder early on. So uh, this was pre-internet. <laughs> there is that time, guys. So you were pre-internet. You were doing coding, and you, and you got into warehouse coding. And that was probably the lowest of the low-tech businesses at that time when you started running into the warehouse business. Am I right? Yeah. It was not a very sexy business at all. But it paid well, and it was definitely in demand. Back in the days when I started, it was all being driven by the big three hardware companies, and software was an afterthought. So you were always associated with IBM Digital or HP, and that was your sort of family, if you will. And then over time, Microsoft came along and came up with this networks of computers, and we all tried to move into that space. That was a very immature Wild West kind of space where things just didn't work very well. But it taught you a lot about how to make systems reliable using software, no matter what the hardware is, and it taught you the importance of software. And pretty soon, software became the driver as opposed to the big three hardware companies. And that was the big thing that we sort of looked out on as we were on the right side of that. So when did you switch from being a, a guy who did code for somebody else to an entrepreneur? Well, I'd always been an entrepreneur. When I, I mean, even just coding, I was a what they call a, what I used to call coding for dollars, programmer for dollars. So you're and like I a freelance. Freelance, yeah. Wherever I could get a job, I would do it, and I'd charge whatever the hourly rate was that I could get, and I work as many hours as to make as much money as I wanted, and then I would play so squash. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, play squash, have a beer. But honestly, I didn't have a plan in my career. I just was moving in a direction, sort of riding the waves, whatever, wherever direction it took me. In the world of programming, I ultimately moved from being a programmer to a manager of programmers. And then I started to see the benefit of just being there in the right place at the right time. One of my clients got acquired by a bigger company, and everybody that worked at that company just hated the new company. So we sort of went off and formed another company 
that I was the CEO of, and then all these guys worked for me, and then we went after all the former customers, and that business just grew, and that was a warehousing software company, and it was running on digital equipment's platform in the late 80s. So by the early 90s, we had moved into PC network systems, and we wrote our own software because that other one was obsolete. And that was really the beginning of my career as an entrepreneur, just that sort of 87, 88, 89, where we went from being a, uh, I always say, what, what kind of company are you? Well, what kind of company do you need? <laughs> right. Well, I will say this. Most people who start a business, there's a lot of consideration of risk. And, and it's not like you were, if you're freelancing coding for dollars, as you said, you must not have been frightened that I better get myself a day job and work 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week or whatever you're doing. You were comfortable with the risk associated with being a freelancer. Yeah, right. I mean, if you're, yeah, I think the best advice I can give people is try to find a business that has, where you have the wind at your back. And in this particular case, we had, warehousing is never going to go away. It was growing. This was before e-commerce, but the wind was definitely at your back if you could automate because nobody had an automated warehouse and they all wanted one. So there was plenty of work. And then programming was just the, the hardest part. So everybody that was in programming had plenty of work to do. And we were always in a high demand business. I mean, it wasn't like it wasn't competitive. It was competitive, but there was plenty of work to go around for all the competitors. So when did you and your partner start your your biz. What eventually became Quiet 3PF. <laughs> so we had a former life before we became warehouse people, and that was this life of being what we call warehouse management system developers. So we first started in 88, 87, 88, right around the end of that year. And uh, we got a big contract with a big company, Toys R Us it was. And so we automated their facilities and then as I said, we decided to move into this e-commerce business. So it was really in that time frame. At the time, was an employee of the company. My partner, Mike Johnson, was an employee of the company. But as we moved through, he uh, bought some shares and he became my confidant. And we decided to really partner up. And we ran that business until the end of 2000, right before the dot-com crash. And we sold it. And at that time, we made enough money in the sale that we didn't ever have to work again, but we thought to ourselves, well, that, that was for a brief moment in time, actually. What happened was then the company that bought us, their stock crashed and we lost a lot of money and we kind of had to go back to work again. But during that time, we started to think that, hey, this e-commerce thing is real and it's different and it's nothing like warehousing from before. And a lot of people don't realize that, but you know, the old days was a push environment where everything was against a schedule. We'd receive the goods from overseas and we'd push them onto store shelves against a plan that we developed or our customer de developed. And it was all very much, we knew what we were going to do tomorrow. We knew what we were going to do the day after that. And it was very organized and orderly and still hard, but, you know, just uh, that model. And then e-commerce was this thing where you're not pushing boxes and cases. You're, you're, you're sitting there in the morning wondering what kind of work you have to do that day. And any item in your warehouse has to be available. Every item has to be available to an order. So you're like, oh my gosh, push items onto store shelves. And we did it using full cases and full truckloads and full pallets and everything was orderly. LDL and truckload. <laughs> yeah, full. we did full truckload. And that's really what the competition was, is who could be the most efficient at getting stuff on the shelf. So that's why Walmart became who they became and uh, put everybody else out of business. And that was the world back then, and it was much easier than e-commerce because in, in the world of e-commerce, you wake up in the morning and you have no idea what you're going to want to ship that day. And every item in the warehouse has to be shippable. So a, an item sitting on a pallet in a case in the top of a rack doesn't really do you any good if somebody needs that. So you have to bring everything down to the store level because now we're the shopper we're the we're doing the pick pack ship for our customer right so the, let me ask a question and i think i know some of the answer but i know you have better insights into it so you're working with big companies at one time the retailers and they say you know that every week i send them this many 
toys or clothes or whatever you're shipping, you kind of know the quantities. And so how long in advance would you have those orders? Well, actually, the big retailers would set up their year in February and March. So they would have these schedules of shipments, and they'd make changes over the year based on what was happening. But they were very much in an annual budget. So the funny thing was they were planning at the macro level. They were planning for the whole company, and then they were deciding, okay, I've got six distribution centers, so I just put this much in each one, and sometimes they'd change it. But it was just this... I called it marshalling, you know, just a marshalling problem. How do you take a big quantity and break it into small quantities and move it through your facilities? And everything was geared toward that. You had big sorters, you had big machines and huge forklifts and all sorts of devices that were geared toward moving big quantities. It was just a totally different kind of model then. Right. So now, so before you used to say, hey, this is kind of what the year is going to look like. Here's how much we're going to ship every month. And it's readily, as I should say, steady state a little bit, but with changes. And now you have, I got an order today. If I receive it by two, it's, or I don't know what the cutoff at your companies are, but get it by two, ship it out by end bids, right? Yeah. It's not just, you know, a little bit more expensive to do that. It's not like twice as much or three times as much. It's like 10 or 20 times as much on a per unit basis. Oh yeah. Because before you were touching very few, if any, individual toys or blouses or whatever being shipped. You're shipping pallets. Yeah. We used to calculate our unit costs like a single digit cents, so it'd be six cents or something. Now it's, you know, two dollars. Oh my God. And I didn't I didn't give much thought to the unit size, the unit cost, but that makes a lot of sense. That's expensive. Yeah, and that's why so many companies have burned through so much capital trying to figure this out. It also gets into the question of sort of on a, even if you got the price from $2 down to $1, which would be great, there's still very few products that have enough margin in them at the unit level to justify that much cost. So so you started in Boston, you and a partner, and you, who were some of your big customers, first customers, if you can, can you mention names or not? Yeah, in our warehouse management system, we sold to NEC Electronics and we sold to a company called Case, which makes backhoes. We sold to Walgreens. We sold to Macy's, a bunch of subsidiaries that are now part of Macy's, like May Department Stores. Shamrock Foods Company out of Phoenix. Woolworths out of South Africa. We were international. So a lot of blue chip. And that's actually normal because back in those days, you couldn't really afford a warehouse management system unless you were a Fortune 500 company because it would cost you $10 million to put it in. Right. So then when you switched gears and then you started this, the, the actually owning the warehouses, what year was that? That was in 2009. So what happened was we sold our first business in 2000. And then we uh, kind of built a business around supporting our, our old customers. Our acquirer discontinued our products and had its own financial difficulties. So we kind of went back to our old customers and said, hey, can we help you? And then we bought another competitor of ours that had a WMS product. And then we ran that sort of that business, which is, I would say, non-strategic, but very opportunistic and very profitable until about 2008. Somewhere around 2002 or 2003, some guy, actually more than one guy called me up and said, hey, there's this company that's making a robot for warehouses and they want to raise money. Do you want to invest? And I said, nah, no thanks. I don't believe Robots are going to have a place in the world of warehouses, and I just was a skeptic, so I passed on <laughs> it. And then again in 2006, they called me and said, you know, this thing's really happening. You should look at it. And then in 2008, when I was you know, still running this kind of, I call it consulting company at that point, a friend of mine called me up and said, hey, I just saw this cool robot running in a warehouse in Pennsylvania, and I finagled a way to get in there to see it. And I was blown away by it. And the best way I can describe it is it turned the uh, whole warehouse into a big, big vending machine. So you could stand <laughs> like that analogy. at the corner of the space and say, I want this item. And it would magically appear in front of you. And it sort of took this really, really complex problem and made it simple. And that was made by a company called Kiva Systems. So we got very excited about that. And I turned to my partner and I said, 
Well, actually, there was another step in there. I came home from this Philadelphia, this uh, Pennsylvania trip, and I said to my partner, hey, I just saw the coolest thing. Let's go see this company. They were based in Boston, and it was called Kiva Systems. And by this time, I couldn't invest in them because they were wrapped up in their own funding, and the company was valuable, and I couldn't afford it. But I said, let's go see them and see if they'll sell us some robots. So I went there and showed him, and they had had this nice little balcony overlooking their little demo warehouse and we looked down there and I I was remarking to him how quiet the warehouse was. I said, I said you can't hear anything happening because the robots are quiet and they're electric and I just turned to him and I said let's morph and become our own third party logistics company and call it Quiet Logistics and he said I'm down for that so that's really where the whole thing came from. We had the software to run warehouses. We saw this cool technology and we named it quiet and then we just took everything we were doing and flipped it we i think they call it a pivot and we just decided we're going to rent our own space we're going to discontinue supporting our other businesses and we're going to try to, to sell companies to use our warehouses to fill, fill their goods and that was started in early 2009 we bought uh, 10 robots and I don't know, 70 storage units. The things the robots move around, they're called pods. We bought 70 of those. And we had two stations where you would actually be able to summon the robots and, and make the pick. So that goes back, you were have robots in this facility, what, 12, 13 years ago? Yeah, yeah. We, I remember the date. It was April 9th, I think, of 2009. We picked our first item, which just because we're, we like little things like this, our first pick was a guitar pick. <laughs> you know, I'm struck by that because I do get calls a lot of times from warehouse management or warehousing companies saying, how do I grow my business? And then I always ask them what they specialize in and I, and I ask about their systems. And a lot of these smaller companies don't have systems. And so they don't have a WMS, let alone a robot. And I keep thinking, you know, back in 2008, 2009, it had to be a rarity to have a robot in your facility. Yeah, we think, I don't know if I could actually confirm this, but I think we were the only company of Kiva that was a third-party fulfillment. And our whole goal was to offer this automation to companies who, who couldn't afford it and do a shared asset kind of thing. Yep. I always think about certain the business of logistics transportation. So it was always the lowest of low tech. It was like, yeah, I got a truck and I pick stuff up and I drop it off. And then I bought another truck and, and they grow. But the idea that it would be technology-based or it just, there was no way that was going to happen. And warehouses were maybe even more low-tech. It was almost like, no way, what would computers have to do with this? You guys came from technology to warehousing as opposed to current warehousing guys that, hey, when I started, everything was paper and pencil. You never lived that way. You started with the tech. Yeah, that was part of who we were. And there was no shortage of philosophical conversations about, is this the right way to go? But my partner, Michael, is quite technical, and I had been a programmer, so I at least understood tech. And it wasn't, I mean, warehousing is not interesting to me without the tech, because, I mean, who wants to work that hard? Uh, you have the technology do the hard work for you. And, and there's also cleverness. It, it was funny, we were a tiny company, but we probably had one of the most sophisticated technology setups in the whole world at the time. And that was always something we were quite proud of, maybe maybe even a little too proud of. But uh, at the end of the day, we were opportunistics. We did opportunistic. We did get a nice opportunity with a company called Gilt Group, which introduced us to the fashion industry. Gilt was basically, you may remember 2009, the, the world was screeching to a halt and we we're trying to recover from the all the shenanigans in the financial world. So the, there was a lot of excess fashion inventory. So Guild Group would liquidate that for people and provide capital to them when they desperately needed capital. And we were their back end. So if you bought something on Guild Group, you got it from us. And that also introduced us to all these fashion brands. And we said, hey, this, I mean, talk about a manual business. The fashion brands were always about fashion and they didn't really think too much about operations or technology. So in our world, they were a very, very fertile ground to go and and try to automate. So we started going after them and saying, can we help you 
and we picked up a lot of really great accounts. And then we got a reputation as being the go-to company if you sold fashion online. So what percentage of your business is uh, fashion today? I would say it has to be 90%. Really? Yeah, well, you guys, you guys have done well. So you started in Boston, and you said you have three locations in the um, Massachusetts area? Yeah, We've leased so many buildings in Boston. We started in 10,000, went to 20, went to 60, then got another building that was 80, and then got another building that was 60, and then we consolidated that into a building, all that into a building that was 290, and then we expanded in another one for another 190, and then we just got a 375,000. And you were also buying robots for all those, right? Well, there's another sequel to this story. And I think that's actually the most important part of it because in 2012, when we started, we had 10 robots or 2009, we started with 10 robots. And by the end of 2011, we had a a hundred robots and um, Kiva, which was our vendor, but also a very good partner of ours. We were friendly with them because we were experimenting and learning together. And it was such a brave new world. And uh, they said, could we bring a customer by? This was in, in late 2011, who was interested in buying our robots, and we need to show them a site that's operating, and will you be a reference for us? And I said, oh, absolutely, bring them by. No problem. We put out the red carpet, and they showed up. And it was Amazon. <laughs> and so we thought that was pretty cool. And you know, here it is, this big company, Amazon, and they, they were just really starting their ramp. They're a top bookseller. <laughs> Well, they at the time were expanding rapidly out of books, but still. So they came by and they liked our facility so much that they decided to offer to buy Kiva, the company, not Kiva Robots. And they then standardized their whole operation on what they saw from Kiva, which included what they saw when they came to visit us. And then after that, we had a new landlord, so to speak, Amazon was our was our vendor. The problem is Amazon had its own set of needs, and the last thing it wanted to do was support our operations. And so over the next sort of 15, 16 months, we tried very hard to engage with Amazon and be a friendly customer of theirs, just like we had been with Kiva and jointly innovate. And But Amazon just didn't have any interest in in us. And we had actually acquired some more robots. And so now we had 200 robots. And we were very committed to this tech and very committed. And, and then in sort of August of 2013, Amazon called us up and said, hey, we're not going to continue to support this product in the marketplace. So you can't use it anymore. Oh, that was a bad day. <laughs> right. Bad day. How many of their robots, the Kiva robots, did you have at that time? 200. And when they say don't support them, does that mean what? how long do you have to get it? Does that mean they're not going to update the software? or? Yeah, they just weren't going to continue to upgrade it. They weren't going to, things, if robots broke, they weren't going to fix them. If the software broke, they weren't going to fix it. And they gave us a period of sort of a workout period of five years, which was, I think, in retrospect, fairly generous of them to do that. But at the time, I was not a very happy chappy, and I was not a huge fan of Amazon for that reason. But it caused us to sort of think our own, rethink our own value proposition. And this is when the whole quiet story gets, I would say, interesting. I jumped on an airplane and flew around the globe and visited every robot I could find, every robot maker I could find. And they were all very welcoming to me because they knew that we bought robots. And obviously, since Amazon was now in the mix, everybody thought, well, this is going to be great for my business because Amazon's validated robots and warehouses. And they said, Bruce is going to come in and he'll buy our robots and then we'll be the next Kiva. And unfortunately, none of the robots had any, in my view, anything to add to our problem. They just, they really didn't do much. The robots are pretty simple and they weren't designed to solve a particular problem. They were actually just designed to be a robot. And everyone was very proud of their robots, but I kept looking at it and thinking, hmm, if you want your robot to work in our warehouse, we're going to have to sort of teach you how how warehouses work. And since we're not going to get paid for that, we're going to be giving you a lot of value and we're going to increase the value of your business. But we're not going to get anything out of that except 
just we'll be back in the same spot. You'll sell out too. Yeah, we're your technology roadmap right here. <laughs> yeah, and we were afraid that they would have a a big acquisition and then we'd be in the same boat. So we decided, I came back from that trip and I said to my colleagues and on board of directors, my investors, I said, we have to build our own robot. So Quiet Logistics now is a robot company in addition to being a logistics company. So that's when the story got pretty interesting. So I looked in your website, Quiet Quiet 3PF is fulfillment still. And then you start a separate company? Well, inside of Quiet, we started Locus. And it was basically the whole management team from Quiet Logistics turned their attentions. And remember, we were technology guys. So we had learned a lot about operations, but we actually hired an operations team and they ran the logistics business. And we um, started focusing our efforts on the technology again. And Back to tech. That was your home. Tech, yeah. <laughs> and we hired people that had skills we needed. Like we hired roboticists and we hired navigation experts and sensor experts and embedded systems people. And we hired an engineering company out of California. We partnered with Harvard and MIT and a college called Olin College and which is part of the Babson Group in, in Wellesley, Mass. And we started working on trying to figure out everything we needed to know about robots. And it turns out that the technology in robots is not that, in my mind, it's, it's not that complicated. It's hardware as much as it's software, but and hardware has its own set of complications. But it didn't seem to us to be a really insurmountable technology problem. And in the time since Kiva had been built, which is, remember I said 2002 was when they first showed up on my radar. That was 12, it was 10, 14 years that had passed when we started building our robot. And that's an eternity in robotics. So there was a lot of innovation that we could take advantage of in terms of sort of open source coding, college programs, graduates that were available, PhDs, theses, things that just had been kind of put out in the space. And we started getting smart on all that. So we built a robot that we were thinking would be sort of the next generation of Kiva. Nice. So, and did you keep those? So you said Locus and then you got Quiet 3PF. Are they separate companies or is there overlap with management? So then things were really much different now within the company. So the Quiet continued to grow and was getting more and more profitable. And our robotics business was sort of using up all the capital that we were generating. So I needed to raise money. So we went out to raise money and we went out as quiet logistics and I would visit all these venture capitalists on the West coast and they'd say, geez, I love your robotics business, but I'm just not interested in investing in logistics. And then I went to the East coast, you know, venture capitalists and they said the opposite. So then I went back to the board and I said, guys, we have to split these companies into two. So they weren't convinced at that time. They decided our investors decided to put more money in they brought in a new CEO. I was at that time chairman and CEO. And they brought in a new CEO for both businesses, and I was chairman. And I figured that they would sort of bring in a guy who's had more experience with building a business. And this, I was not a hardware guy. I was not a robotics guy. So, and so this guy came in, and he started. His name is Rick Falk. He's a, quite a good executive, and he came back with the same recommendation to the board, which is we got to split these companies and. So they split them, and then we operated them separately. It was interesting, too, because we started to have conflicts of interest. I mean, a lot of our robots, we sold them to third-party fulfillment companies. Right. In your backyard, probably. (laughs) Now we have competitors of Quiet buying Quiet's technology. That seems odd, doesn't it? Right. Right. You know, when you mentioned the robotics, I, I'm from automotive. I spent much of my career in engineering and manufacturing. And one of the things, seeing those robots in assembly plants, it just changed everything. Some back-breaking jobs that were always in automotive, people would be injured just from li- lifting stuff up or being crouched down. And then to see a robot come in and do that job and turn turn a guy who was doing that job who would every day be dirty, sometimes bloody, certainly sweaty. And now he's now he's making sure that the robot, multiple robots, do the, the job. It transforms, it transforms the workforce and for the better. 
Yeah, it, it's amazing what they can do when you have the money to actually spend on them, because I know they're not cheap. <laughs> well, the way Locust works is that you don't actually buy the robot. You actually lease it monthly. So it's almost like you're paying them a salary, the robots. And there's no real capital outlay. And Quiet is now one of Locust's biggest customers. It's been an interesting evolution. So the board then, after we split the two companies in a couple of years, went on. The operating team at Quiet continued to grow the business and continued to remain profitable. And then the board decided, well, let's let's sell Quiet Logistics. At that time, there's a, a guy had approached me, I don't know, maybe a year earlier, and he'd heard about our approach to logistics and appreciated sort of the combination of the technology and the operations. And he had said to me, look, if this business ever comes for sale, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to explore buying it. So I mentioned that to the board. I said, hey, I know a guy who wants to take a look at this. And so we brought him in, diligence did, and he liked it and made an offer and the board accepted it. And so then we, we moved the company from Quiet Logistics to what's now the Quiet 3PF under new ownership. And at that time, while I was chairman of both Quiet and Locus, he asked me to come back and sort of be a transitionary CEO to run Quiet. So I left Locus entirely. And that actually resolved some of the biggest uh, conflict of interest problems. Because now it was the boards were separate, the management was separate, everybody was separate. So I was at Quiet from basically all of 2019 at which point the new ownership decided that they wanted to run it. And so I've been promoted, if you will, to uh, vice chairman, which I remain involved in in advising and helping wherever I can, including like talking to you. But I don't have as much responsibility as I used to have. I would like to be the chairman of vice, not so much the vice chairman. (laughs) (laughs) So today you're in Jacksonville, right? I am, yeah. I'm touring uh our warehouse down here. So you guys have, how many fulfillment centers does Quiet have? I think it has nine. Three in Boston, and then Chicago, LA, Dallas, and Jacksonville, and St. Louis. I believe there's one in being um, organized in the New York, New Jersey area. There are others that they're planning. The group that bought Quiet is very aggressive in terms of growth, and as their former real estate guys, so they understand just the whole concept of putting facilities near people, how to be smart about that, and where our target markets are. So that's the whole plan is to execute against that strategy. Yeah, I had heard, I had read, I should say, that you know a lot of these malls that went up in the, I guess, 70s and 80s, then they'll look like ghost towns now. I know Amazon has bought some of them and are transforming them into distribution centers or, or fulfillment centers because... They are close to population centers. They're always close to highways. They're close to the infrastructure that they need. They're always wired. They got the water. They got everything they need. And they're usually humongous spaces. And I grew up in Dearborn, Michigan, which we had for a long time the number one mall in America, Fairlane. And Ford built it, I think, or it's Ford Land. If everything's called Fairlane is Ford. And it was like when it opened up, I was like 16. It was like Disney opened up in our neighborhood. I mean, we couldn't believe it. My friends and I would go and just wander and wander. And now you go to that mall, it, it's depressing. It's not, it, it just didn't stand the test of time. And I keep thinking, tear that down, put up a big fulfillment center, because it is close to everything. I think there's some innovation coming down the road in malls. And I think you, I'm not sure I can predict what it will be, but I think I've seen enough to know that there are some very smart people thinking about what to do with these buildings. And there's a couple of issues I have to overcome. One is that malls never quite have enough doors, meaning shipping doors. Right. And you really need a lot of those in these facilities because there's a lot of trucks coming and going. And the other thing is that they all happen to be, often happen to be in neighborhoods and they're not set up to handle big, big volumes of trucks. And a lot of the neighbors are, they might put up a little fight and say, look, we don't want to have this become a commercial industrial trucking zone because we have kids running around. So I think those issues have, and that's why you need sophisticated real estate expertise like Wyatt has to be able to understand how to route traffic and how to turn these buildings into fulfillment as opposed to retail stores. I think Amazon's doing some of that. You know, when I was still involved with quiet uh, decision-making, I know we were touring a lot of malls 
But the whole idea of somehow activating the inventory that's in malls and making it available to e-commerce orders and to be efficient about it, because honestly, if you're picking from a retail shelf to fulfill an e-commerce order, you know, you're burning money. It's just very inefficient. So you really need to do a better job of that. It seems to me, however you retrofit them, it's going to be very difficult. I know right now, if you order something from Target.com, there's a good chance that a Target store is doing the fulfillment. Not everybody's set up that way. Maybe, and I and I know people talk about, well, Walmart can do that. Perhaps they can. I mean, they if they choose to, they can. But none of this is easy. <laughs> These are big, big ships to turn around too. It's not economical either. And I think it's really the way I think of it is the long tail, right? You want to have, if you think about every order profile in terms of what SKUs move and what SKUs don't move, there's always going to be a 20% that dominate 80% of your volume or whatever it is, 90, 10. And that has a name, it's called Pareto's Law, so or Pareto's Curve. So there's a Pareto's Curve. And I think what you want to do is have the volume stuff come out of warehouses and then the long tail stuff come out of the stores because you really don't want to have a lot of volume in your stores. You're your workers are not well trained. I've never heard it's, anyone say that. So if I was to say the 80% goes into fulfillment centers to be delivered. So I might go to the store and say, well, for instance, I bought this laptop at Best Buy. And when I, I went over, lifted it up, put my fingers on the keyboard, said, yes, this is the one I like, talked to the sales guy. And he said, it's not in stock. So when you buy it, do you want to pick it up here or have it shipped to your house? And I think, yeah, that's that makes sense. That's not offensive to me. I didn't need to take it out that day. If I did, I probably had to buy something else. But I think that's, so you're saying 80%, the SKUs that make up the 80% of your business are fulfillment, and then the long tail, the other 20% go into stores? No, I'm saying stores have all 100%, but I'm saying that, or at least a representative of the 100%. It's just that when you are trying to promote your your business and you're putting the, because your web also has 100%. What you want to do is you want to direct the fulfillment for the fast movers from the fulfillment center and the slow movers from the stores, because then you don't really have to store so much of the slow movers in your warehouse. And your warehouses are very efficient because you're going to save a lot of money if you ship it out of the warehouse. So you really want to move your low volume stuff to the stores because honestly, it's so inefficient. You know, again, it's not a factor of it costs you twice as much or three times as much. To ship it out of a store costs you a whole lot more because, I mean, think about what you're doing. You've got a store clerk who gets paid a lot and he's wandering around in, in an inventory that's not perfectly accurate. You can't really find the stuff, so it's not going to be efficient for them to find it. You may have to walk a long distance to find it. Then he has a very inefficient packing station because your stores aren't set up to be every movement's choreographed like in a warehouse tape dispensers and every size cardboard and all the marketing materials and everything else that has to go in there. It's just very inefficient if you ship out of a store. And you don't want your store people to do picking if you can avoid it because think about it. Customers are wandering around. You want to have them interacting with the customers and you don't want them to be saying to the customer. It does oh. certainly blur the lines between fulfillment worker and retail worker because to your point, if somebody walks up and says, can I, can you help me? And say, yeah, when I'm done... Get this order out. <laughs> or are you going to take that last item? Are you going to take that last <laughs> pair of small white shorts? Or can I have that so I can ship it to this customer in, right. or in county, right? It's just a matter of what they should be doing. It's interesting because I just the podcast I just published today was with Guy Quitan from Texas. And one of the things he said was Amazon's opening stores, but they have not a lot and not the Whole Foods thing. But when they open these stores, they have very few SKUs, but they also know how to organize these because of what sells. And um, I was like, well, that's kind of interesting because it's data-driven. But Costco has very few SKUs in their stores. And I think, yeah, so I think, I don't know, what's your thoughts on that? If I have very few SKUs, they have a lot fewer SKUs than, say, a Walmart or a Meyer or something like that. That's true in other businesses, too. Costco's a big box store, and their whole strategy is to have fewer SKUs. But then you go to a place like Home Depot, and they have just 250,000 different SKUs. An average grocery store has around 35,000, so it gives you a perspective. Wow. So how many um, would Costco have? Well, they might have 5,000. And the reason is that that's how they make their money. They sell, they tell you, look, if you're going to want to buy Kleenex, you're going to have a choice of one or two. 
And that just allows them to have more volume with Kimberly Clark and therefore get a lower price and pass it on to you. So that's their whole strategy. And, you know, we have a customer that we've been with since they started called Mack Weldon. And they oh, yeah. ship, yeah, great company. And they ship uh, undergarments and they have very few SKUs. But they just happen to be the kind of SKUs that everybody needs. I'm buying um, a pair of shorts from them. <laughs> and they add selectively, they'll add a new, mostly it's undergarments, but maybe they'll add a piece of outerwear. But they're smart about it. And they make their money by having a very, very focused approach. A lot of SKUs makes business very, very complicated. I mean, one of the things that was a challenge for Bonobos was they went from having a certain range of sizes to a new strategy, which they called every every body strategy. We're going to support every one of our garments is going to fit. No matter how you are shaped or sized, you're going to, there's going to fit you. So their skew count per style went from maybe 20 per style to like 60 per style. And all of a sudden, it's an explosion of skews. And now you've got long tail in every dimension, right? You've got long tail by every style. I mean, how many size 13 double D shoes are you going to sell? Right. That's- and you know, it's interesting. I just had Ali Raza on. He does throughput AI. And one of the things they can show this graphically, when you have all these SKUs and you look at just throughput out of a facility, and then you look at throughput you know, through the logistics and distribution, said, it's amazing how many transactions are not profitable. And he says, companies still struggle to understand which SKUs are, are, are making money after the shipping. Right. And that amazes me, too. I mean, and I think it's largely because retail is run by merchants and by buyers. And buyers are always sort of chasing the deal. Like, they'll say, oh, look, my current demand is 2000 but if I can buy 10000 I can get a 50% discount. And so they buy it and now they have 10,000, but then you have to store it all and 8,000 of it might never sell. Then you have to liquidate it all. And it sits there on our shelves as 3PF. We're constantly facing skew increases. Like uh, it's just a constant battle inventory inflation customer might start out with 500,000 units projected in their total inventory. And then after two or three years, they're up to two and a half million. And that's just because they buy stuff and it doesn't sell and they don't want to write it off. <laughs> yeah, that's... So in general, is it your sense that if you have too many SKUs, you're really you're tempting the devil there? It ultimately catches up to you. I mean, auditors are supposed to be after that, right? They're supposed to say, look, you haven't sold one of those in six weeks or eight weeks. We have to write down that inventory. And the buyer's like... Well, I didn't anticipate that in my model, so I'm not prepared to take that write off. And there's a big battle, but pretty soon I have to write it off. Yep. So before we wrap this up, I want to understand. So you've kind of very uh, dryly in the in many. I know there's all these problems behind the surface of all these things that you've accomplished, but you don't belie that in your your voice. So tell me a little bit about how you kind of dealt with the, there had to be ebbs and flows and ups and downs. There had to be a lot of sleepless nights. Tell me how you personally kind of endured all this. It seems like a meteoric success, but I'm sure there didn't feel like it. (laughs) Well, it's still a work in process. I think the good news is both Quiet and Locus have created a lot of value for the shareholders, billions of dollars. I've been in the world of constantly reinvesting in the future. So I would say, I continue to wait for my big payday, but I have confidence it's coming. I think that my model as CEO has always been to be a very predictable guy. I, I get that from get, you. <laughs> I try not to get too high or too low about things. You know, a lot of things that people don't realize about being a CEO is that you don't get any easy problems ever because the easy problems get solved by your very <laughs> able team and they don't want to bother you with it because it implies that they've not been able to stay on top of it. And I always hired people that were smarter than me, and which isn't hard, by the way. Uh. And uh, <laughs> I was relied on them. And um, my view was, if you bring me a hard problem, then let's just sit down and figure it out together. And oftentimes, I would say the answer presented itself, if you just talk about it enough. A lot of times, it wasn't an easy answer. I mean, laying people off is the right answer, but it's often a very hard answer. But we did that when things got bad. We had to tell our board that we had lost our robot, which was hard. 
made us feel a little stupid. Harvard Business School wrote a case study about what not to do based on quiet logistics. And, you know, a lot of people say, I hope I hope Harvard Business School writes a case study about me, but that's like having... You assume you're going to be on a positive story. It's like Lou Gehrig's disease, right? It's so rare that we named it after you. So right. Right. in our case, we were the example of what they call a supplier concentration risk. Don't ever end up with one supplier. So all these great students come out of Harvard now knowing don't get yourself in the position Bruce put himself in. And <laughs> you know, I guess I can take some pride in that. And I wasn't happy the day that Amazon You get to be it. the bad example. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't happy the day Amazon acquired that they were buying Kiva because that introduced uncertainty into our world, but it was probably the best thing that ever happened. So what I'm trying to get at is behind the scenes, you had to go home at night thinking, oh my God, what have I done, right? What What's happening here? How do you kind of deal with these ups and downs over over time? Because you come off just kind of very matter of fact. I have to think there's got to be emotions roiling sometimes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think actually playing sports helps a lot because you get a lot of aggression out. So there were times when I felt like if I could just get out and hit a ball or something, that would make me feel better. I had a very strong partnership, business partnership with Michael Johnson, and I think that's saved my sanity because... We would talk every day, all day, oftentimes in the morning on our commute in, and, and we both had an hour commute. So what we would do is we would argue uh, our point of view. Sometimes I'd say, we have to do A, and he'd say, no, no, we have to do B. And then we'd spend time thinking about each other's perspective, and then we'd get on the phone and we'd each argue the opposite because we, well, you convinced me that B's right, but I don't think we should do A. So, no, no, I think we should do A. And it was really funny how that dynamic worked out over time because we were very efficient communicators, but we also were a support system for each other. And I always recommend that people have at least one person in their life who's kind of in a similar, like a partnership that can help them think through these really hard problems. And there were a lot of things about what we did that I look back on as just stupid as hell. Yeah, I've always liked, you think of like someone like Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett has Charlie Munger and he always calls him his partner. And I know they have very little overlap in their businesses. I know Charlie Munger has a, an interest in Berkshire, but he always says that I've read a lot of books about him and their confidants. They talk about everything. And so if he's going to make an investment, he calls Charlie and Charlie's always got the opposing point of view. Fundamentally, they're the same, but they have a lot of disagreements about the details. It's really helpful. I mean, a lot of people would say, well, I have that in my wife or I have that in my father or whatever. But helps to have someone who actually knows what you're talking about because what you tend to do when you're describing the situation to someone who's not involved is you tend to, you're foreshadowing what you think and then they're going to listen and they're going to go, well, you just told me what you want to do. And so that's they're going to agree with you. Do. Right. <laughs> because you're, but Michael and I were both so attuned into the details of the business that I could say, well, this is what I'm thinking. And he'd say, well, don't think about it that way because here's really what's happening. And he was a data guy. So a lot of times he'd say, let's just go to the data. And that was always a great clarification. Yeah. What well, you mentioned about playing sports and getting your aggressions out. I felt like when the gyms closed here during the pandemic, it was cold. We got the kind of same bad weather you guys have in the winter. And I remember last year just forcing myself to go out for, just go for a long walk in the cold. And I remember thinking, I just feel so much better when I get, a, it's just a totally different perspective. And now that the gym's open, I try and go there at least once a month, whether I need it or not. <laughs> but, but, but it really is important. It changes your mood. So you mentioned that you were this competitive athlete growing up. Do you feel competitive in what you're doing now? Or is this just kind of your life's path? How do you view all this? Yeah, I mean, everything is competitive at some level, right? Competition is what makes our whole economy work. Capitalism is really competition, and it drives you to do better. I think I've learned over the years that I'm not a very good marketer. If I were to sort of rewind the tape, I think I would try to develop that muscle a little more because there have been so many instances in my, in my career where the best product didn't win, but the best marketed product won. And I think you really have to have that in your genetic code as to how you can actually get people excited about what you're doing and, and want to buy what you make, even if your product is 10 times better than the, uh, the competition. There's, there's no guarantee they're going to know that. 
Nice. Nice. It's funny you should say that that whole thing about marketing because with the internet, I always feel like there's always somebody who's just really nails it. And these Kickstarter programs, some other fulfillment company told me, you got to beware the Kickstarter guys because they are very charismatic or you know, gals where they're very charismatic and, hey, I had this problem and I've solved it this way. And, and everybody, you know, they get raised $10 million in Kickstarter and then the, the product never really is that good. <laughs> and they say, but the story was so compelling. <laughs> or the GoFundMes now. Somebody says, oh, this political party disagreed with me. And people say, that's fantastic. I hate them. So I'll give you, I'll give you 10 bucks and a million of my friends will do the same. (laughs) Anyway, let's wrap this bad boy up. So who do your companies serve and what's next for these companies that you're involved with? Well, client services companies that just sell, aggressively sell premium branded clothing. So you have to be willing to pay for the brand itself, right? And in the world of retail, I think retailers, are, if they don't have enough problems already, are having a hard time because these brands now can go direct to the consumer. So our view is let's just work with the brands and they have to have a strong sense of who they're selling to. And I think that the world's going to bifurcate into companies that have premium brands and companies that have low prices. So... We're going to try to service the premium brands. I think the internet still continues to go through a shakeout and a lot of companies are going to fail because they're just going to realize that their business is structurally unprofitable. And pretty soon all these people that are supporting them, financing them, they're going to say, look, we're just not going to do this anymore. You really have to become profitable. And you know, I look at Amazon sometimes and I, I always sort of had the sense that once Jeff Bezos backed away from Amazon that that Amazon's balloon is going to pop. And really, at the end of the day, it's three really not very good businesses, right? If you were to value Amazon as a retailer, it's currently way overvalued. If you're going to value it as a third-party fulfillment, it's way overvalued. If you're going to value it as a marketplace or flea market, whatever, it's way overvalued. So it's really three very low-valued businesses with a web-based service business. It's kind of small, actually. And at some point, people are going to wake up to that and go, this just isn't worth a trillion and a half dollars. Now, you know, when is that going to happen? Is it when the growth stops? Because they've been writing their growth for a long time. But it's such a behemoth. Yeah, you know what that's interesting about Amazon is, remember there was recently, there was talk of a strike down in, I think, Alabama. And I was like, and I'm an automotive guy, so I lived these union, the union life for many years. And... um, not in a union, working with unions. And it struck me like, what is he doing? What are they doing in that business, in the fulfillment business? It just it just seemed to me like, what a mismatch, because it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But And it's come up a lot on my podcast that who's going to start competing against Amazon? There's certain brands that have said, we can't be part of that because of the conflict we have with them. And it's been mentioned, hey, maybe Shopify creates something with all of their, you know, people who are using their software. The story's not ended. It just seems as, okay, the race has ended, Amazon won. We, we all know 10, 15 years from now, a whole bunch of the market leaders won't be market leaders. Yeah, of course, I wish I knew the answer because then I'd invest. But <laughs> Shopify is an interesting story for sure. And actually, I did make a lot of money in investing in them about their stock when they were small. But honestly, uh, I don't know the answers any better than anyone else. But I do think that, you know, there's going to be a reconciliation around profitability because I think we still need to establish profitable business models in order to sustain. And there's just a lot of companies in this space that have just never made a profit and really have no prospects of ever making a profit. So that's going to have to reconcile. We say this sometimes in the transportation, when I talk to transportation people, a lot of companies, it's a low-margin business in a lot of cases, but what's also crazy sometimes is there's these companies that have VC-backed money, and and you go, hey, that don't worry about that. That's free, Joe. Bruce, that's free. Don't worry. Free, free, free. All these, and you go, it's not really free. Somebody's paying for it somewhere. And I keep thinking there's some VC pounding his fist on the table saying, when are we going to be profitable? <laughs> and that's why I like the brands, because people are willing to pay I mean, the extreme example is uh, Louis Vuitton, right? 
the average SKU costs a thousand dollars. So people are willing to pay extra for whatever they sell: their iPhone covers, their wallets, their key holders, whatever it is. That's still you think that's going to hold? Because I keep thinking my daughters; they're uh, in their twenties. I know they're loyal to brands, but they're not loyal to the brands that say generation before was because they don't have a thousand bucks to spend on a bag yeah. right now <laughs> but as an example you know there are people willing to pay for the brand name and the quality that comes with it so we prefer those kind of customers to companies that are just selling commodities at, at the lowest possible cost yeah and you gotta think also when you talk about brands and paying that premium price i've just read somewhere that was six percent of households in the u.s are millionaires which is not the same as being a millionaire generation ago, but the overall wealth of the world is there now. So people are going to pay that premium for the brands they like. We know that. So I think we're going to see that kind of shake up over time. It'll be who can make enough money to be able to actually ship profitably on the way. Right. Getting back to like Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett loves those brands like Coca-Cola. And he says, look, at some point they became a low cost producer, but the name itself, Harley, Jeep, Coke, Louis Vuitton, they matter. Well, Bruce, I really do appreciate you taking the time. This is a very interesting story. Man, you've been there, done that, got the hat. <laughs> Congratulations <laughs> on quite the career. So what's next for you? Well, I'm always looking at um, the next generation of tech. I continue to be fascinated by the evolutions of robotics and uh, people that supply robotics companies. What I'm sort of fascinated with now is, you know, what problems can we solve and what problems can't we solve with robots? I'm particularly attuned to the concept that the robot itself is not the best answer to every problem. And in fact, I have found very few places where it is the best answer because, you know, specialized machines are generally speaking more efficient than robots. And we've spent a lot of years developing, I mean, think about, all the different things that go into making a car and is a robot ever going to help you stamp out a car body and stuff like that. Yeah, I think the problem is just the uh, category itself when you say robots. And yeah, I think robots are specialized machines that do one thing. I have to say one thing. Every time somebody says robots, I think of this. Years ago, I was down at uh, Honda Automotive Manufacturing down in Ohio, Ham, they call it. So I only was there one time and I was working on some problem and it was... uh, product problem but it was on the assembly line and so I was all day long there was this robot that was carrying parts from one place to another and it was making this noise like and I was like what is that and it kept going by and I was like why is that robot making that noise and everyone's like kind of well it's a long story I go well, I want to know why does it have to make that noise it would drive me crazy if I worked here and they said the Japanese people who made that robot think that it has a soul and that that robot is happier because he gets to sing while it works. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> okay. Very, very Japanese. <laughs> I was like, wow. I was like, I was like, I took two semesters of Japanese and I did not learn that weirdness. But anyway, <laughs> so, anyway, it's a brave new frontier. And I do feel also that if we're going to get people to work in fulfillment centers, we're going to have to have robotics because... You can't expect somebody to go in that job. There's a lot of job opportunities. You can deliver food. It's a lot more fun to do DoorDash or work for Instacart than it is to go in and lift boxes. So we're going to have to create good jobs in those facilities. And I think I'd be happy if the young person said, I'm going to go in and get a job here and I'm going to work with robots and I'm going to work with these cool systems. Less interested if they say, I just... I have a strong back and I'm going to move packages. So I like the idea of people like you transforming this business with tech. Yeah. So that's the one thing I think about. And then the other thing which I alluded to earlier in this talk was I think we have to solve the waste problem. I think we generate too much waste and there's a killer app coming on that somewhere. I don't know what it is. Somebody's going to figure out some clever way to make disposition of trash part of the process, like a seamless part of the process so that we don't have to constantly figure out what to do with it. Well, the one thing I just had somebody on my podcast talking about circular supply chains. And we tend to have linear supply chains. And she said, really look at the outputs of your supply chain. There's a product, but there's also pollution and waste, right? We're always looking at scrap materials. If it's scrap metal, we sell it. So we've already figured out what to do with that. 
Now, what do I do with that pollution? How do I monetize it, is what she would say. Monetize the end of that supply chain. And then when you look at the beginning here, the inputs to your supply chain, how do I, what do I do with those? And I saw something I thought was kind of interesting today. I'm not really a Bitcoin guy, but Elon Musk said we aren't going to accept any more Bitcoin transactions for Teslas until the mining is tied to sustainability. And I was thinking, oh, that's kind of interesting. If you if you created a, a currency that basically said, hey, the way I earn this currency is by cleaning up or solving a problem with waste. And I was like, I didn't read the article yet, but I'm sure there's some somebody's thinking about that. I was thinking, that's kind of cool. If you said, hey, look, one good way to make a, a lot of money is to figure out a way to clean up waste. That's exactly what I'm thinking. And, and I'll leave it with a little teaser, something I'm working on. Ooh. <laughs> What's that? That's all I'm going to tell you. <laughs> all right. All right. So maybe you're behind this. So I should look to see if you're talking to Elon Musk. Well, Bruce, I really do appreciate you taking the time. And what I'll do is I'll put a link to your company, both your companies, Locus and Quiet3PF. We'll put those links in the show notes and I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile. And thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Joe. It's a pleasure chatting with you. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logisticsoflogistics.com. 